1: Welcome back to our broadcast. We are uh, again delighted to have Dr. Woodrow Kroll. I might mention his middle name because it's I have an affinity to it. Michael Woodrow Michael Kroll. You know what it means, by the way?
0: I do, but I've forgotten.
1: So when I was a kid, I was told it was one who is like God. Michael, El, Elohim. Sure, M. Sure, sure, sure. And then when I took Hebrew in seminary, I came to the conclusion that's not right because M, as you know, Many times in Hebrew is a question, Michael, who is like God? No one, not even the most magnificent angel God created. So whenever I meet a young Michael, I always tell him that story and they look at me like I'm crazy. Well, Dr. Crow has a prolific writing ministry, almost 60 books. Again, in our show notes, you can find out about him. Grew up in a pastor's home, Elwood City, Pennsylvania. He earned his Bachelor of Arts Barrington College, he went on to Gordon-Conwell where he earned an MDiv in the 70s, further continued his Master of Theology and Doctor of Theology. Geneva St. Albans Theological Seminary and has done post grad work at Harvard, at Princeton, at UVA, uh, on and on and on. He has ministered and spoken in over 120 countries around the world, pulpits. You may know him, probably if you know him, from his Back to the Bible broadcast ministry on uh, Christian radio for 23 years. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Dr. Kroll on the broadcast is so many of our younger Uh, listeners have not been exposed to some men and women of uh, notoriety and the way God's used them, and God has used Dr. Kroll extraordinarily. Our friend Dr. Erwin Lutzer, the pastor emeritus of the Moody Bible Church in Chicago, said, quote, God has chosen Woodrow Kroll to be the man to sound the alarm of Bible literacy and awaken us to a vision of better day's Ahead. George Gallup said, Woodrow Kroll has been a frontline leader in the effort to bring back the Bible as the foundation of the faith. And I would echo those sentiments. So, what I wanted to do in our second interview with Dr. Kroll was to ask him my 10 questions. So, um, one of the things we do on this broadcast, Dr. Kroll, is the name in context is sort of a double entendre. Uh, I have said for years when we're teaching Scripture, you must understand the context in which the passage was written before you try to understand it, much less apply it, as well as then asking people how they see their life in the context of where God has placed them. And it's somewhat self-evident by your history, but I'm just curious when you look at how God has gifted and skilled and used you, how would you say he's used you in the context of the ministry that you have had and continue to have
0: well let me begin with my own life context first i am a dedicated follower of jesus christ i make no apology for that that's my context and that context impacts everything else in my life beyond that uh, i'm a husband Married to the same woman, Linda, for 112 years. <laughs> Not too long, I know. But, but she's
1: only 45, yeah. <laughs>
0: it's 56 for her and 56 for me. So.
1: Oh, uh, you're one of those guys, okay. <laughs>
0: uh, I'm a father. I have four married children living in Nebraska, North Carolina, Florida. Uh, and here's where I really get proud I am a grandfather of 16 Goodness. and great grandfather of five boys. Whoa, good for you. Oh, so, You know, I have a wonderful family. I'm a neighbor. I hope a good neighbor. I'm a church member. You know, I'm an ordinary person. I have a 1992 Ford F-150 pickup, almost 30 years old. I love it. But I also have a hybrid electric car. So, you know, (laughs) I've got one foot in the the 50s and, you know, one foot in the 20s. So that's the context I live in. How many Uh, miles
1: does your F-150 have on it?
0: You know it's not bad. It's only about one hundred and fifty-seven or so miles. So. Oh,
1: you just getting her broke in.
0: Yeah, it's been sitting in a barnyard somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure. A long oh, time. it's not
1: running. See, I thought you had it like frame well, off it's run- or storage. No, it's running. It yeah, oh, okay. runs. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I
0: had to just put a new distributor cap on it, and you know. Now you've those.
1: really aged us all, because only That's those right. of us that are probably sixty and older know what a distributor is. Second question: What's the greatest challenge? in your own spiritual journey?
0: You know, I began with a leg up, and I want to admit that right up front. I was born in a uh, Christian family. My father was a pastor. He was bivocational. He uh, pastored two small churches. Uh, In fact, we would go to the large church. That was about 125 people. (laughs) Wow! We would go to the large church, do Sunday school and church. My family and I would hop in the car and drive seven miles down the road to the small church that held about 50 or 75 people. And we do Sunday school and church all over again. So I got in four services before noon every week of the year, every Sunday of the year. But I was saved at age five in that little tiny one-room church. I'll never forget it. I began sensing God's call in my life at about age 15. But my leg up, and this is where my great challenge comes from, my leg up, having been born into a Christian family and a family that just lived to serve the Lord. My leg up has disadvantages because I don't have much of a testimony, you know? I don't know any other life. Being saved at age five, I mean, I wasn't saved out of the drug culture. I wasn't out of prison. I wasn't a famous athlete that finally was converted. I mean, nobody invites me on their program to give my testimony. Because <laughs> I have been following the Lord almost all the days of my life. I'm glad about that. I am glad that I was born into a Christian family because, as I say, it gave me a leg up.
1: Let me ask you, you know, because a lot of people who were born in a PK or MK have a very different view. When you said I was in two churches and four services, I can hear half the population going, that's why I left the church.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I say I have a leg up on spiritual journey because for me, it wasn't a problem. Now, yeah when I was six years old, my mind would wander in that second service and second Sunday school. In fact, I often introduced my wife at public meetings uh, by saying that my dad pastored these two churches. I got to the second church. My six-year-old mind would wonder and I looked up at the class of girls in Sunday school, and I picked out this one little girl, and I said, now, maybe that's the girl I'm going to marry and then to the audience, I would say, I'd like to introduce her to you. Linda, would you stand up? And uh, <laughs> you know, all the women would go, oh, <laughs> all the men would go, oh,
1: brother, you know. yeah.
0: <laughs> but that was my life. And the greatest challenge I face as a result of that spiritual journey is when I fail spiritually, no one expects it. Mm. I mean, the stakes are high for me. Uh, spiritual lows, dry spells those aren't supposed to happen to someone with a leg up. And yet they do. They happen to all of us. And I think my greatest challenge is to not only accept my own vulnerability, but to have other people accept me as a person who does have lows and does have dry spells and does need to cry out to the Lord. And that's a challenge. It's the reverse challenge of most people, that you
1: will interview. Mm. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that. One of the things I'm keenly aware of is to talk about my own struggles and my own failures and my own apathetic attitudes at the time, because I think that there still are people, not a lot, but there's still all some that look at you or me or someone, and they have us on a proverbial pedestal, and That's it's cool. a dangerous, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, your Bible teacher, your pastor, some hero you have in the Christian faith, we're flawed. You know, and we're gonna have dry spells, and we're gonna sin. we're gonna get in trouble. and um, yeah, it's an interesting dilemma.
0: It's more than I put my pants on one leg at a time. Yep. I mean and you not... have
1: bad breath in the morning too, right? Just like yeah. me.
0: It's a lot more than that because um you know, the devil gets in my way too, and he tempts me. He knows exactly my weak spots, and he zeroes in on those like he knows everybody else's yep. weak spots in on those. So I struggle with my own spiritual growth, just like everybody else. Yeah.
1: Thirdly, do you have a key verse of the Scripture?
0: Uh, I do, yes. My favorite verse uh, is best, I think, understood in King James, uh, and that would be 1 Samuel 12, 24. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, mm-hmm. for consider what great things He has done for you. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the story of my life. That's good.
1: That's good. After the Bible, one, two, three books that have been particularly impactful in your life.
0: Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, There are many, of course. I'm the product of other people's good ideas. Years ago, I stumbled onto a book by Ted Angstrom called Managing Your Time. Huh, yeah. You know, tiny little book. Yeah, know it well, yeah. I always appreciated Ted Engstrom and the variety of roles he had in God's uh, kingdom. up. But that changed my habits. He said, look, make a list of things you need to do. I actually went to a seminar. He conducted one time. He says, make a list of things you need to do, about five things. So I've made a list of five. He says, now prioritize them, you know, put them Mm -hmm. one to five. And I did that. Then he said, okay, get rid of the bottom half. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I said, well, these are important things. But what he's saying is you'll never get to the bottom half. You know, that's why you prioritize things in your life and that, you know, it's not a spiritual book, but it is a book about life and managing your time, and it was deeply impactful on my life. Probably my favorite author is A.W. Tozer. I read anything Tozer ever wrote, The Knowledge of the Holy, The Mm. Pursuit of God, Mm. uh, The Purpose of Man, anything A.W. wrote uh, for me was uplifting. And then Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Mm. Full disclosure here, I like his meditations on the cross because for the last, going into the fourth year now, I've been writing a book on crucifixion, specifically on crucifixion in the Roman Empire, and then more directly, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And right now it's 750,000 words, so it's, you know, it's two volumes easily, and I'm not sure anybody's going to want
1: to print
0: it, but nonetheless. I read Bonhoeffer's Meditations on the Cross, and uh, you know everybody kind of migrates to his cost of discipleship. Right, Meditations on the Cross was the one for me. Well, one final book, and this will uh, rock the socks of everybody. There's a book called Jesus in Jerusalem: The Last Days, and it was written by Eckhard Schnabel and Craig Evans. Schnabel, of course, is German, and uh, this is a book that. Uh, solidified for me kind of the chronology of the Passion Week, which helped me in writing the book I'm writing on. Huh. Great. So those are some yeah. the books.
1: You familiar with, um, I think it's Peter Walker, uh, The Weekend That Changed the World?
0: I am familiar with yeah, that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the week that changed the world, Episcopalian guys, I recall, but I've really appreciated that in leading tours to Israel because you're trying to explain to them this is a real short runway of three years, and the last week was really quick. Uh, yeah. So, And the other one I'm sure you're well aware of is the old JAMA article that the oh. physician, the Methodist pastor, and uh, I forget the other profession did on the crucifixion.
0: Right. No, they've been highly
1: criticized,, oh, but I it think was right on. I think at that time it was they had more mail, both positive and negative, on that piece than anything they had ever published, and uh, it's a remarkable thing to bring out prior to Easter. Good stuff, okay, let's continue here. number five, What is one of the biggest lessons that you've learned at this point in your life?
0: Well. Two lessons stand out in my mind, uh, well, maybe three. First, I've learned that I don't belong to me. You know, I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. My my goals, my gifts, my finances, everything, my life are not my own. I'm not in charge of it, though the Lord is. First Corinthians 6.20, for you are bought with a price, so oh, glorify, glorify God, God in your God. body. That's a very, very important lesson for Christians to learn, that the decisions in my life have to be based on what, God wants for me, not what I want for me. And then, secondly, and I've written a couple of books on the subject of the judgment seat of Christ, so this is heavy in my mind, I've learned to begin every day at the judgment seat of Christ and work backwards. Hmm. That I mean, you know, if Christian's life will be judged at the future judgment seat, uh, our lives and service for the Lord there will determine all that we enjoy for eternity. This is not a judgment of salvation, it's a judgment of service. What did the Lord do through us? What did we allow him to do through us? But, you know, as you say, we have a very short time to earn all the rewards that we will enjoy forever. And so I think that's why it's important for me to start at the judgment seat each day and say, Okay, is what I've done today worthy of eternity? Or is it just messing around with time? And that's been helpful in my life. I said maybe there were three well, that's good. I, I have also that my significance is all wrapped up in my relationship to God. Uh, you know, the search for significance is the most significant search in life. But if our significance is found in insignificant things, even our search is insignificant. So what I am, who I am, relates to my relationship with God more than it relates to my relationship with anybody else in the world. Mm. Those are big lessons I've learned in life.
1: Excellent. Number six, what is one thing you'd long for every believer to know, to do, or to practice, or to live, or however you want to tease that out?
0: You know, having spent uh, 40 years now researching crucifixion and almost four years writing this book, I think now I would say to every believer, I'd want you to know just how huge was the price that Jesus paid for our salvation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just... We all think of, you know, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ movie and how gory it was. And I have to tell everyone uh, that wasn't half the story. It is an incredible amount of pain and suffering, Mm -hmm. both physical and sociological and spiritual. Uh, I mean, it just... What I'm doing in the book is I'm looking at crucifixion through the eyes of the architect and through the eyes of the poet and through the eyes of the archaeologist and the biblical historian and the theologian and, and the artist, you know, all these multiple disciplines, seeing how they see the crucifixion of Jesus. And when you get to the eyes of the physician, you really get to understand just what that price was. And it was tremendous. Mm, mm
1: you know i've often said the physical torment of the crucifixion is unmeasurable compared to the spiritual separation that christ mm-hmm. endured and you think of the god man going through this process it is a remarkable thing um and again i think we do need a lot of these reminders uh number 7 the greatest disappointment in your ministry vocation etc
0: well As you know, I have been interested in fighting what I see as the plague of Bible illiteracy. I've dedicated a lot of time to this. I've tried to put coalitions together for evangelicals to, uh, you know, deal with it seriously. And I guess my greatest disappointment is um, we keep getting dumber every year than the Mm -hmm. year before because we keep seeing the Bible as an important, life-changing book. Each year of uh, the general population. Most people don't read their Bibles. Most Christians don't read their Bibles. And I would say my greatest disappointment in ministry has been um, the continued growth of uh, illiteracy when it comes to knowledge about God's mm-hmm.
1: Word. Eight, your greatest encouragement in your context, ministry, vocation, etc.?
0: Probably, I would say, the bravery of Persecuted Christians around the world. You know, in some places, it's like the first century Roman Empire all over again. In Africa, you are slaughtered simply because you're a Christian by uh, Muslims. In China, the government is more repressive right now than it's ever been, in fact, against Christians, house church Christians. Some years ago, uh, we used to do our Back to the Bible broadcast in Chinese, in Mandarin. And we did it with the partnership of Transworld Radio. And since you can't broadcast in China to China. You have to broadcast into the country of China. Uh, it came from Guam, and it was sent in three signals into China. As a result, I made several trips to China just to meet with people who had listened to the broadcast or, you know, were uh, house church pastors. And one time... A Transworld Radio Chinese man and my wife, Linda, and me, we hopped on a train and went from Hong Kong up to Guangzhou in the lower Cantonese province. Uh, Our goal was to deliver Bibles and hymnals to a Chinese pastor. And so the CWR guy, who was Chinese, rode in a different coach on the train than we did when we got off in Guangzhou, we went through the international line. He went through the Chinese line. They held him up for a long time. Mm-hmm. I'm carrying two suitcases and they just waved us through. Didn't mm-hmm. even want to see the suitcases, figuring we were tourists, I guess. Each suitcase had 70 pounds of Bibles or hymnals in it. So I'm struggling carrying 140 pounds of you know, these good things. And we finally get to the hotel at night. And then in the middle of the night, I mean, literally in the middle of the night, maybe 3 a.m., a Chinese pastor and his wife don't speak a word of English. They come to our room with a Chinese man who was a contact for TWR, and they have suitcases identical to the ones I brought. But theirs are empty. (laughs) We switch suitcases in the middle of the night. I go out with two empty suitcases They go back to the interior mountain with Bibles and hymnals for their church. Wow. I shouldn't have taken so long telling that story, because the point of going in was also to spend a little time with Samuel Lamb. Your listeners may be familiar with the name. Zondervan actually did a book called Bold as a Lamb. Samuel Lamb was a pastor, house church pastor, in Guangzhou, and we visited him, talked with him at length uh, during his lunch, and uh, (laughs) he pastored this. Little church, just a flat in his home. There was no uh, furniture in the house, just benches for the church. They used closed circuit TV to the flat below them because they outgrew the one flat. And he said, I was uh, dragged off to prison for two years, and while I was gone, my congregation doubled in size. Wow. And then two years after that, the police came back again, dragged me off, and this time I think he was gone like. 22 years. I mean, a long, long goodness, time. Goodness. And when he came back, he said the congregation had doubled in size. And then with kind of a glint in his eye, you know, just a little look to you, he said, I think I'm going to write a book on church growth. Go to prison. Don't America. I don't know any pastor who go to prison for twenty four years. I
1: think I'll sit with my congregation size as
0: it is, right? (laughs) But but that's the encouragement I get. I get it from Christians who have things much worse than me, and yet there's a smile on their face. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they don't complain about what happens to them. They're very vocal in their witness. You know, we went to Samuel's house is flat by going through some alleys and some back ways so the police wouldn't follow us directly to his front door. But when we left, he came to his front door out on the street, hugged us, and waved goodbye to us. So they have no fear. I mean, these people have absolutely no fear, and that's a real encouragement
1: to me. I was in Nigeria uh, in 90—oh, goodness, two, three— and uh, we spent about a month over there training pastors, and I met a man affectionately referred to as Baba, which is like grandpa, and uh, almost blind. His wife was blind, a litany of health problems. One of their children had uh, been killed by radical Muslims. The other one had married a Muslim, and he was in some respects you know, the elder statesman father of this uh, evangelical churches of West Africa at the time. And I remember talking to him and his wife in this very modest home, and you've been there eating pounded yam and some greens and very little meat. I've never met a man who'd been through more difficulties, who had more joy about his walk with Christ, in spite of losing a child, in spite of having one married to a Muslim. And, you know, as well as, you know, no health insurance, no social security, no medical assistance, nothing. Uh, but daily subsistence. And I thought if American believers could get a taste of what it means to have trust in the Lord, no matter your circumstances. We like our creature comforts, Woodrow. Uh, Let's go on here. Um, Number nine, if you could write a letter to your 19-year-old self, what would you say?
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, The first thing that comes to my mind is Psalm 63. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you to the dry and weary land where there's no water. If I were to give some advice to myself when I was, you know, entering my early 20s, right out of my teen years, I guess the best piece of advice i could give to my younger self is to seek the Lord on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Jesus was telling people not to be anxious about the things in their life. We have just talked about this. Food, clothes, you know, the daily needs of life. And after using the birds as an example of how God takes care of his own creation, and then the lilies of the field, too, Jesus says in Matthew six thirty three, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Hmm. I can't think of any advice that I would need more to live my life in a way that pleases God and benefits other people than by putting God first and seeing everything in, in my life as kingdom work. You know, Whatever I'm doing, or whatever it may be, I can bless others, and I can do it with the right motivation. And not to get something in return, but just to be God in their lives. Mm. Psalm 105, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. That's the kind of advice I needed as a 19-year-old.
1: Larry Moyer, mutual friend of ours, said uh, your life should be a thank you back to God. I like that thinking, similar to yours. Okay, final question. What do you want your epitaph to read, Dr. Crow?
0: (laughs) You know, actually, Linda and I already have a headstone (laughs) with our epitaph on it. In fact, when it went up, we live in a small town, Ashland, Nebraska, population 2,000 or so. And when that headstone went up in our local cemetery, everybody asked her if I was dead because (laughs) the name is, you know. Uh, this is quite a story of how we came to have this headstone. This is a black onyx Bible. It came from India. It measures 48 inches wide by 72 inches high. Whoa! That's four by six, four feet by six. And this thing is so big, you might be able to see it from space. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, and uh, we got it as a gift, which is why we have something on size. Radio listeners living in southern Pennsylvania... Somehow, apparently, I was of help to them at some point teaching on the radio, and they wanted to return the favor, and they came to a conference, actually, at the Cove in Asheville. Mm-hmm. They came when I was teaching, and they said, we want to give you a gift. And I said, well, that's not necessary. And I said, no, oh, no, no, we want to do it. And I said, okay. And they said, we want to buy your headstone. <laughs> I'm thinking, what? I mean, who gives you a headstone? (laughs) But they were very serious, and they had this stone picked up. They'd actually seen it in um, a mortuary uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania, and they said, that's Woodrow Crow right there. And so they bought it for us. It had to be shipped to Nebraska and set in our local cemetery. So they went back to the mortuary where they saw the stone originally, and they asked the guy there, uh, would he be able to ship it to Nebraska? And he said, well, I could. It'll be expensive, but I could do it. And they said, well, it's a gift we're giving to Woodrow Kroll. And the guy said, well, I hear him on the radio all the time. <laughs> so he brought it out here. Free it, of charge. The night with us, that's all. Didn't charge us dime. I mean, uh... I have a headstone that is massive that God gave to me through these people. Now, here's what it says on my wife and my headstone. It's Numbers 32:12, and these words only. They have wholly followed the
1: Lord. Whoa. That's the quote. Whoa. With that, I can't say any more other than, if you do not know Dr. Woodrow Kroll's ministry, Hope this whets your appetite a bit. Over 60 books in print, very easy to read. That does not mean they are light or theologically void. It means they're well-written for us to comprehend. Most known, perhaps, as the president and voice of Back to the Bible for 23 years. Now, with God's Kindness, the Helios Project. And again, we'll have information in the show notes about how you can learn about the device, about what it does, as well as supporting the effort and perhaps purchasing one for yourself or friends. Dr. Kroll, it's been a pleasure to have you on the broadcast. Thank you for your ministry, thank you for your faithfulness, and thank you for your time.
0: Thank you so much. Blessings to you and to all your listeners as well.
1: Michael in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time
0: or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull,
1: produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.